Welcome to Music History Monday for May 9th, 2022. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Little Richard, the King and Queen of Rock and Roll. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the death on May 9th, 2020, just two years ago today, of the American musician, singer, and songwriter Richard Wayne Penniman, known universally by his stage name of Little Richard. Born on December 5th, 1932, in Macon, Georgia, he died at his home in Tullahoma, Tennessee, two years ago today, from bone cancer. He was 87 years old. As a founding inductee to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986, the following statement was read aloud. Quote, he claims to be the architect of rock and roll, and history would seem to bear out Little Richard's boast. More than any other performer, save perhaps Elvis Presley, Little Richard blew the lid off the 50s, laying the foundation for rock and roll with his explosive music and charismatic persona. On record, he made spine-tingling rock and roll. His frantically charged piano playing and raspy, shouted vocals on such classics as Tutti Frutti, Long Tall Sally, and Good Golly, Miss Molly defined the dynamic sound of rock and roll." Unquote. Yeah, along with Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Ike Turner, and Bo Diddley, Little Richard was one of that handful of black American musicians who synthesized blues, rhythm and blues, or R&B, and gospel into what came to be called rock and roll in the mid-1950s. Pennyman put it this way in an interview with Time magazine in 2001, quote, It, meaning rock and roll, started out as rhythm and blues. There wasn't nobody playing it at the time but black people, myself, Fats Domino, Chuck Berry. White kids started paying more attention to this music. White girls were going over to this music, but they needed somebody to come in there like Elvis, unquote. Yes, like Elvis, who hit the big time in 1956. What Penniman is saying is that white audiences required a white performer to legitimize rock and roll and make it part of the white mainstream culture. And sadly, to a degree, this is true. But Little Richard, whose ego was ordinarily as over-the-top as his makeup and gender-bending personality, here does himself a rare disservice. Because to no small extent, Elvis built his persona on that of Little Richard's. And so did almost everyone else. No one. No one had more impact on the emerging rock and roll scene than did Richard Wayne Penniman. No one. 
the androgynous flamboyance of David Bowie, Elton John, Michael Jackson, and Prince, Little Richard had been there, done that with even greater extravagance decades before. With his pencil mustache and pancake makeup, his gospel-strong voice and his hooting and hollering, his erotically wild drag queen persona, Little Richard didn't just tear down barriers, he nuked them. All in all, it was no small thing for a black, openly gay man from the South to accomplish what he did in the 1950s. His impact on the rock and roll community was seminal. James Brown worshipped Peniman and imitated his screams and whoops. Otis Redding, also from Macon, Georgia, and Sly Stone built their musical personas around Peniman's. When the Beatles met Little Richard after a performance at the Tower Ballroom in the Merseyside Resort of New Brighton in October 1962, Peniman gave Paul McCartney a lesson on how to scream in tune, a lesson McCartney would put to good use on Hey Jude, Maybe I'm Amazed, and I'm Down. A performance is linked, recorded in 1957, that features Little Richard singing his rhythm and blues song, Lucille. Rock and Roll. Rock and Roll was a post-World War II social and musical phenomenon made possible by three events. World War II itself, the invention of the solid body electric guitar, and the invention of the 45 RPM record. World War II, mixed the races in the United States as no other single event ever had. Black Americans left the rural South in huge number, bringing their musical tastes and buying power to the urban and industrial centers of the country. The solid body electric guitar, well, it was invented in 1941, an invention credited to both Clarence Leonides, or Leo Fender, and to Lester William Polfus, or Les Paul. Whoever we credit with its invention, the instrument changed forever the sound and impact of popular music across the globe. Finally, on March 31, 1949, RCA released the first 7-inch 45 RPM record, Tex Arcana Baby, recorded by the country and western singer Eddie Arnold. The 45, this 45, was made of green vinyl as part of an early attempt to color code records according to the genre of music they featured. Other colors included red for classical music and yellow for children's songs. The color-coded record thing was quickly abandoned, but the 45 RPM format was not a format that allowed a total of nine minutes of fairly high-fidelity music to be placed on two sides of a light, portable, and inexpensive disc. With the appearance of the 45 RPM record in 1949, hundreds of small record labels came into existence in order to cash in on the new technology. And among the best-selling genres of music issued on those new 45 records was an earthy, urban, electric guitar-dominated style of blues called rhythm and blues, R&B. 
Initially, the market base for these R&B recordings was the post-World War II black American community. But increasingly, these rhythm and blues recordings were bought and loved by white teenagers and post-adolescents, a post-war generation of young people searching for musical modernity and relevance. It became apparent that there was real money to be made from R&B, and the big record companies took notice. These companies, Columbia, Decca, RCA, began to systematically record black performers for the first time even as they sought out white performers capable of creating what was called the black sound. The rhythm and blues craze reached its peak in July of 1954, when the Cleveland, Ohio-based disc jockey Alan Freed signed a $75,000 contract, that's $801,000 today, with WINS 1010 on your AM dial in New York City. Freed initially called his nationally syndicated rhythm and blues show the Moondog Show. Unfortunately, Freed was sued by Louis Harden, a six and one half foot tall, blind, white street musician who dressed like a Viking and went by the name of Moondog. Well, Moondog Harden won his suit. So in December of 1954, Freed changed the name of his show to the Rock and Roll Show. As the Rolling Stone history of rock and roll exults, quote, rock and roll, it was perfect. It was a way of distinguishing the new rhythm and blues from just plain old blues. At this point of its evolution, it was a lot easier to say what rock and roll was not than what it was. However, indefinable it seemed, the groundwork had been laid for a teen-oriented, rhythm-and-blues-based music with country elements. If it met those criteria, the chances were that it was rock and roll." Unquote. Alan Freed, the disc jockey, called himself the father of rock and roll and spent the rest of his short life claiming to have invented rock and roll. In truth, he invented neither the music nor the term, though he did popularize both. But much more importantly, for which he should be proud, Freed brought black American music and performers into the homes, ears, and hearts of white American teenagers, and by doing so contributed mightily to laying the groundwork for the American Civil Rights Movement as it developed in the 1960s. The astonishing commercial potential of this electrified teen music was revealed in February 1955 when a 12-bar rhythm and blues song entitled Rock Around the Clock, performed by Bill Haley and his Comets, surpassed one million in record sales in under six weeks. Pushback. Oh my goodness. Do I have to tell you how grown-ups how the white establishment reacted to this pounding, rhythmic, harmonically simple, and sexually provocative new music? Oh, on the whole, they reacted poorly. The great Spanish cellist and conductor Pablo Casals told an interviewer, quote, You want to know what I think of that abomination, rock and roll? 
I think it is a disgrace, poison put to sound. When I hear it, I feel very sad for the people who are addicted to it. I am also sorry for America that such a great country should have nothing better to pour into the expectant ear of mankind than this ugliness." Unquote. Frank Sinatra proclaimed that, quote, "...rock and roll fosters totally negative and destructive reactions in young people. It smells phony and false. It is sung, played, and written by cretinous goons and by means of its almost imbecilic reiterations and lewd, in plain fact, dirty lyrics, it manages to be the music of every sideburned delinquent on the face of the earth." Unquote. Harsh, old blue eyes, so harsh. But not entirely inaccurate. Let us cherry-pick a couple of phrases from Sinatra's comment. He speaks of imbecilic reiterations and lewd, in plain fact, dirty lyrics. What Sinatra inelegantly refers to as imbecilic reiterations is, rather, a drummed rhythmic vocabulary descended directly from West African drumming. Rock and roll was, is, and always will be primarily dance music, and as such, the rhythm is the thing. As for lewd, in plain fact, dirty lyrics, well, okay, guilty as charged, at least some of the time. It's not that Sinatra himself didn't sing suggestive songs, please. What in heaven's name do we think such titles as I'd like to get you on a slow boat to China. And you go to my head are all about. But we'll admit that the sexuality in those songs is expressed with a degree of subtlety. As opposed to, say, the flamboyant homoeroticism of Little Richard's lyrics. Take, for example, his 1955 hit, Tutti Fruity. Going back to the 19th century, fruit, fruity, and fruitcake, and other variations thereof, have been used as homophobic slurs primarily, though not exclusively, towards gay men. Pennyman's original lyrics are a celebration of anal sex. Quote, Tutti Fruity, good booty. If it don't fit, don't force it. You can grease it. Make it easy." Unquote. <laughs> Obscene? You betcha. Funny as hell? True that. Now, admittedly, in recorded and filmed performances, Little Richard cleaned Tutti Frutti up. But he loved performing it live in all of its raunchy glory, claiming that, quote, it cracked the crowds up, unquote. Predictably, Tutti Frutti didn't become a major international hit until a hopelessly naive and unhip white person covered it. That hopelessly naive and unhip white person was none other than the Christian singer Pat Boone, born 1934, who recorded Tutti Frutti in 1957. 
a television performance by Boone on the show Canada Hit Parade from 1957 is linked. Writes Professor Ben Sanders of the University of Oregon, quote, Pat Boone's success with Tutti Frutti is emblematic of the racial inequities of the 1950s music industry. But once you know the origins of the song, the Christian crooner's clinical and clueless take on Little Richard's swingingly queer hymn becomes ironically piquant, unquote. Nicely put, though rather understated, Professor Sanders. Then there's Little Richard's Long Tall Sally, featuring words which were sung verbatim both live and on recordings. Here's how its second verse begins. Saw Uncle John with bald-headed Sally. He saw Aunt Mary coming, and he jumped back in the alley. Uh-oh, Uncle John. What are you up to with bald-headed Sally? No good, we think. In fact, there's a lot more here than immediately meets the ear. Starting when he was still a teenager, Penniman toured the American South in traveling drag shows, that worked the black entertainment circuit during the late 1940s and early 1950s. He first performed as a mysterious turbaned exotic and then as a drag queen named Princess Levon. Writes Yale University professor Tavia Young Oh, quote, other queens and freakish men, as the black speech of the period named gender non-conforming males, Talk Little Richard the musical, performative, and sexual ropes, unquote. Little Richard built his own pansexual persona from these experiences, to say nothing of the content of his music. So back to the bald-headed Sally with whom Uncle John is dilly-dallying. As W.T. Lamont Jr. observes in his cultural history of the 1950s entitled Deliberate Speed, Harvard University Press, 2002, in the drag shows of Little Richard's apprenticeship, quote, bald-headedness was preparation for one's wigs, unquote. Ah, so understood this way, long, tall, bald-headed Sally was a bad boy impersonating a bad girl, which means that Uncle John was, if you'll excuse me, working both sides of that alley writes Ben Sanders, quote, Today, we might even describe Sally as a seductively non-binary object of queer desire, unquote. It was Elvis Presley, 1935 to 1977, who brought the overt sexuality of rock and roll to a head. No pun intended. Elvis Aaron Presley. Presley's almost instant rise to fame in 1956 was aided and abetted by two new media technologies. The transistor radio, which was introduced to the United States in November of 1954, and television. Elvis Presley's first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show on September 9, 1956, was viewed by an estimated 55 to 60 million people, a number very likely several orders of magnitude greater 
than all the people who had ever attended a live concert in the previous 300 years. Elvis Presley's impact on planetary culture was likely greater than that of any other individual during the second half of the 20th century. His look, his manner of singing, an equal part black American blues, Christian gospel, and Southern country, his sexually provocative way of moving, and the intensity and abandon with which he performed are all now part of the iconography of the 20th century. But we must give credit to where credit is due. Without little Richard Pennyman, neither Elvis Presley's style of singing nor his oversexed grunt and groin stage persona would have, could have, evolved the way it did. Rock and roll lit the fuse for the sexual revolution of the 1960s, which was, for most adults at the time, bad enough. But what truly upset much of white America vis-a-vis -vis rock and roll was the perception, the correct perception, that rock and roll was mixing the races. Asa E. Carter a well-known Alabama segregationist and member of the Ku Klux Klan, told Newsweek magazine in the April 23, 1956 issue that both jazz and rock and roll were part of a plot by the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, to, and we quote, mongrelize America by pulling the white man down to the level of the Negro, unquote. And there it is, the real reason the adult white mainstream initially rejected rock and roll. It's the same reason that the white mainstream had previously rejected ragtime and jazz and would later reject rap and hip-hop. Racism, pure and simple. As it turned out, Asa Carter's worst fears were justified. Not that America was being mongrelized, but from Carter's perspective, what happened was even worse. In mixing the races, rock and roll helped create the preconditions for desegregation and the civil rights movement of the 1960s. It's a fact. Black singers and musicians like Little Richard were on the front lines of desegregation. In the 1940s and into the 1950s, Black bands often played before strictly segregated audiences, particularly in the American South. But, as Steve Knopper writes in Rolling Stone magazine, quote, In the era of Elvis, Chuck Berry, and Little Richard, a curious thing started to happen. Rock and roll shows became so boisterously biracial that it was sometimes impossible for officials to fully segregate them. Some recall the cops simply throwing up their hands. Says the coaster's Leon Hughes Sr., quote, A lot of places had the color line when we first walked in, and after we started playing, they let them cross the line. It was beautiful, unquote. Yes, crossing the race line was beautiful, and Little Richard's impact and influence was at the forefront of it all. He was truly, as he claimed to be, both the king and queen of rock and roll. Thank you.
to sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.